Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. Well, it might seem a simple case of putting forward your case, but there are plenty of perils for representing yourself in court. I'm here with Zahir Idris to explore how a straightforward offence can still throw up plenty of legal curveballs. Zahir, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Amy. So I just want to start by imagining that I've done something wrong and in what situation I would need to start looking at my options. So what have I done to consider whether or not I need legal representation? I think probably one of the easiest things that people trip up on Mm -hmm. is driving offences. Maybe we'll think about a driving offence, right? So you may find yourself in a simple situation where you've gone through a red light or someone's gone through a red light in your car, Mm -hmm. it's not you, and you think, that's unfair, I shouldn't have to cop the $352 and three-point demerit. I wasn't even driving the car. Exactly. It was my darn kids um, (laughs) or my sister or my brother or my wife, whatever the case may be. Mm. It wasn't me, right? That tends to be the starting proposition for most people. They get this justifiable anger Mm. and they're like, this wasn't me. Surely I can go to court and I can say to the judge, your honor, it was not me. Or as I've heard, your majesty, it was not me, which I promise I heard at the district court more than one occasion. So look, that's probably the most common theme that you hear is you know, really day-to-day sort of things. Across Australia, it's called different things, but we have like a thing called a Dividing Fences Act as well, so neighbourhood disputes. Often okay. people are representing themselves, you know, neighbourhood disputes, a fence falls down or mm. someone pushes a fence down or it's the wind or, you know, storms happen. That's something you find quite often. In New South Wales, we have NCAT, and those are places where people often find themselves, you know, representing their interests, wanting to advocate for themselves. In your experience of seeing people who have self represented. Is there a particular type of person or a particular kind of occupation that seems most likely to think, yeah, I can go it alone. I can do this. In the first part of my career seeing self-represented litigants, I would see a lot of tradies repping themselves. I wish I would went back and make a documentary and chat to these guys Mm -hmm. because you could tell it came from a really strong sense of self-worth and this belief that they were just right and that someone was trying to do them wrong. Mm. Right? So they turn up to court, steel cap boots, high-vis vests, all their paperwork in front of them. This one bloke, I remember him clear as day. We're in the local court and the registrar there and he stood up and he said, register, and he called him register the entire time. <laughs> and the registrar did not bat an eyelid, Yeah, <laughs> let him call him register the entire time. But this guy was adamant that this was his time and and he was really conscious of his rights and of his ability to defend those rights. I would also see independent taxi drivers often turning up disputing damage amounts okay. a lot and I think the theme tended to be 
small businesses, people who were, you know, contractors. And the other one also tended to be that I saw were people who quite obviously couldn't afford legal representation mm. um, and they didn't qualify for legal aid. You would see they were from often marginalised communities. Mm-hmm. It was easy to see people who struggled with language communication skills, and then very occasionally people who were not familiar with the system. So in recent migrants, you could tell navigating the system themselves. It was really tough, and uh, I think a lot of the time they didn't know how to get the help, mm-hmm. so they just turned up to court because they got this very formal piece of paper that said you have to turn up to court, and they look lost. You could see it in their eyes. Mm-hmm. So there was a mix. I wish there were less, but, you know, that's the case, unfortunately. It's it's either the ones who really are adamant or the ones who just don't have access. Yeah. If someone needs to arrange legal representation, so if they think, mm, I could go to the court and defend my honour and prosecute this neighbourhood dispute or driving offence, but maybe I'm a little bit scared mm. of appearing before a court and courts mm. can be intimidating, sure. where would someone start in looking for legal representation? There's a few things. Maybe we'll take the person who's already got to court and mm-hmm. suddenly their the bravado or <laughs> the Dutch courage or whatever you want to call it has worn off. <laughs> Completely washed away. Right? They've looked at the 25 lawyers lined up in the list all in grey suits looking like their souls have been taken from them, uh, <laughs> waiting for their matters to come up and they thought, I cannot do this. Again, I'll use New South Wales as an example. The local court have, you know, what are called duty solicitors or duty barristers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are sometimes people there that can help you on the day. Mm-hmm. They're staffed by volunteer solicitors. Most people can find assistance, I think, through law access, Mm -hmm. legal aid, community legal centres. So there are a few different places where you can seek out that help. But it is good to know that even if you do turn up at court and you think and you've got all your notes and everything prepared, Mm. you're like, I'm going to do this, and then you turn up and you realise that it's the worst kind of public speaking engagement that you've ever encountered. So sweating everywhere, you don't know what's happening, your green bag full of material is <laughs> got a pear in the bottom and it's leaked through. All of those horrible things could have happened. Yeah. There are some people there who can help you out. And I think what's really important is if you're in that situation is magistrates in the local court don't want you to have a bad time. Mm-hmm. They don't want the lay person to feel like they don't belong. So they'll give you a chance or they'll point you in the right direction and say, you know, okay, Miss Dale, maybe you're not having the best time today <laughs> and the pair did squash all your homework, <laughs> and but go outside and see this person and they might be able to help you or I'll stand the matter over for a couple of weeks for you to be able to get some legal advice. I think for the most part, if you're honest and if you're genuine, the court will try and help you find a way of either representing yourself or finding legal advice advice and assistance. Mm. I think that's interesting because I think a lot of people would feel that the court situation is almost a bit like a school environment. You think I'm going to turn up and I'm going to get yelled at because I haven't prepared and this and that. It's not as horrible as people would think it is. Yeah. Um, if you're self-represented. That being said, you've you've really got to gauge whether or not it's something serious or not. If it's something, I'll often say to people, if it's something that you might find you are going to get a suspension of your license, for example, Mm -hmm. or if it's something that holds a custodial sentence, i.e. something that takes you to jail, you know, there's a potential criminal element to it. You should Mm -hmm. probably get some legal advice. It's not advisable as a non-lawyer to represent yourself. In fact, um, as a lawyer, I would never represent myself. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's for a serious offence. When you're in court and you see people attempting to self-represent, do you have that like, oh, 
this is a hard thing to go it alone here and you sort of can't replicate the skills of the job in that sort of amateur sense. It's interesting to see it in action. Like I feel an affinity for people when I see them advocating for themselves Mm. and that's possibly because I don't come from a family of lawyers. Mm. Um, I come from a like a bit of a social justice background and, and for me it's like someone fighting for the rights, I'm like, yeah, go for it. But in the same vein, as a trained lawyer, I also look at it and I think you're probably out of your depth here mm. and this is where I was talking about before, you know, you need to measure up, is this something too serious or the consequences of this too serious? It, it's ultimately thinking, you know, worst case scenario, you know, we're talking about that fine, Maybe you, you just pay the $357 and take the three points if you mm. can't prove that there was someone else in your car or you agreed to pay half the cost of amending the fence. Mm. That might be an assessment you make in your brain and think the consequences of this are too much or if you're willing to accept you're going to have to pay half of the fence or the fine that you have a go anyway. Mm. So in the local court or tribunals, it's actually encouraged for people to come up there. So it's about speed, the the idea is that justice is supposed to be quick and cheap, mm-hmm. right? So what we're trying to do and what the, the system is trying to do is get those people through as quickly and with the best form of justice for everyone involved as they can. Mm-hmm. So that might be me looking at someone thinking, oh, maybe you're out of your depth, but hoping that the member or the magistrate or the whoever the judicial officer says, Miss Dale, this might be a little bit difficult, but I'm going to help you out here. Maybe Mm -hmm. you should look at this or that or here are some other options. And that's where you hope the system actually helps. So while Mm. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, all of those (laughs) years at uni and they get a free run and if that was me, I would have got smashed by it. There's a balancing act, right? (laughs) So you've got to think I come to the court and there's an expectation of me as a lawyer that I know a lot more. Mm. But particularly in those areas where you're more likely to see self-represented litigants. The court is going to go a little bit easier on them and it's consistent with what the courts say about just quick and cheap resolutions to matters. So I think, you know, when I see people advocating for themselves, I love it. I also worry for them, but I'm (laughs) grateful that our system, for the most part, allows people to at least have a go at it. I know you've talked about a magistrate or a judge or a member going easy, but what about the other side? Will they go easy on you or are they like, no? I mean, I wouldn't if it was you. No, I'm kidding. Um, Look, I think what happens is I've appeared before self-represented litigants before. Mm -hmm. There's this term that people often bandy about in the law. They talk about an advocate from the bench and we Mm -hmm. don't necessarily – it's a bit – I don't want to say it's derogatory, but people sort of say, oh, they've got an advocate from the bench, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're getting a a bit of an easier ride because you don't have a lawyer, Mm -hmm. which is probably the way, but it's not an unfair ride. It's – perhaps the procedural things that I would know as a lawyer that you, as my opposition and unrepresented and without a lawyer or without legal training, um, may not know you'd get an easier ride on it. And I should expect that is the case. Mm -hmm. So it means that my case needs to be buttoned up 100%. Mm -hmm. Like I can't come with any looseness because if I come with something that may be found in your favour, then the court is probably going to give you that opportunity Mm -hmm. to take advantage of that. And I don't think that's unfair. It's about being equitable before the law. If it doesn't disadvantage me, mm-hmm. or gives you an opportunity to correct something, then I, as the lawyer, probably need to know that and I need to advise my client about that as well. Mm. Look, that's not unreasonable. You sort of know that those procedural things that you could 
potentially catch people on, mm. you're not going to catch a self-represented litigant on. The court's mm. not going to let you do it. You're not going to make a point about it's actually section this of that Correct. legislation e- exactly. and just going to fact check you there. Exactly. <laughs> the magistrate's going to look at you and say, and look at me particularly and say, Mr. Idris, it's not really relevant, is it? And I'll say, no, Your Honour. But I uh, just wanted to show that I studied for nine years. But <laughs> What would you say is a benefit to representing yourself if such a benefit exists? The reality is I think people engaging with the law as a self-represented litigant does a number of things. It keeps you engaged with the system that ultimately dictates how we move and navigate our world, right? Everything we do is regulated. Mm. You know, like it or lump it, that's the world we live in. And being in a court allows you to appreciate to an extent that that is the way it happens and that there is often more to it than we just seem to see. Alternatively, you might get another appreciation for the fact that our system is under pressure, right? Mm. There's a reason there is lines and lines of people that stand outside the court. Like no lawyer wants to stand toe-to-toe with another lawyer yeah. for hours on end. You know, that, that I remember that as a junior lawyer, that 9.30 list in courtroom 5.7 or whatever it was at the local court, it was mm. a long list. Yeah. Sometimes you'd sit there until 11.30, 12 o'clock before your matter got heard. Mm. The system is under strain. That's another appreciation. Someone might be like, why do the wheels of justice turn so slowly? Well, if you're in there <laughs> and you see it. There's a lot of people it, in that car. <laughs> exactly, right? It's, there's many cogs. But yeah, so I mean, those are some of the things that you get to see when you engage in, in the process. Mm. If in a situation that I've decided to represent myself, I've got a dispute with a neighbour about a fence or something like that. Is there a way that I can find out that they have legal representation? Because like, I want this to be a fair fight. I don't want to turn up on my own and it turn, turns out that they've got, you know, you or one of the, be- one of the best lawyers in the state. And I'm like, oh God, I or one really... one of the best. I won't, I won't be offended. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, I want it to be fair here, you know. Yeah. Look, most courts allow you as a party to the proceeding to take your case number, mm-hmm. to go to the registry and ask to look at the file. Mm. Or there are different forms for different courts, but it's basically asking, are there representatives who are registered? So when a lawyer takes on a case, so if I took on your matter, mm-hmm. I would write to the, the registry and I would say, I'm now the representative for Miss Dale, uh, this case number, please record it on the file. Mm-hmm. Anyone who is a party to that, can request from the court to have a look who the representatives are. So you can know. Unless someone appoints a lawyer the morning of Mm -hmm. turning up to court, you'll probably know and you can make a phone call. New South Wales courts have online registries. You can apply for those sorts of pieces of information. Mm -hmm. You can turn up to the local court here in in Sydney or at your local court and they can find out that information. It's not impossible. It sometimes will take a few days, Mm. uh, a few phone calls, but the information's there. So you shouldn't be shocked. In your years that were spent doing matters in the local court, how often did you see self-represented cases? It's a good question. (laughs) I'll use a time where I worked for a particular client that had a number of local industry court matters. Mm. And let's say I had about 70 of those matters at any one time. I would probably hazard a guess and say two or three of those might be self-represented. Okay maybe more, mm-hmm. but by the time they got to court, they were less and less. Okay. Yeah. So I would say, let's say 10 out of those 70 were self-represented and we go through that preliminary process. What would happen is 
the closer it got and the more complicated it got, people often, you know, what we'd say, lawyered up. But in the local court, I would say one or two at least in every list. There was always a handful. Mm. Like more than, I, more than I expected. Every single time there were more than I expected. And it wasn't always in the local court. I would see it occasionally in the district court. It was a very um, famous or infamous matter that ran in the federal court for many years that I would see this one person and she was self-represented. Mm-hmm. She wasn't a lawyer, but she obviously was extremely clever and she gave the barristers a run for her money. Really? Yeah. I was actually, I was going to say, ask about horror stories, but maybe we should first begin with, are any of these ever successful? Do people ever go to and go, wow, you're actually pretty good. Like you're a natural at this. Look, I saw, <laughs> I saw someone defeat a barrister. Wow. In a motion. <laughs> I almost gave up my practice certificate that day. <laughs> and I thought, why even bother? And you thought that. Imagine what the barrister felt right. like. <laughs> it was not a particularly complicated thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, to go up against a barrister... And to resist the application successfully, it was really impressive. And at the federal court level, it was extraordinary. I have seen it happen a few times in the local court. I've lost my fair share of interlocutory matters on motions to self-represented litigants. Okay. One or two. I've never (laughs) lost a case to a self-represented litigant, but, you know, I've lost some interim interlocutory matters and that's that's fine and that means the system works. Mm. You know, I love it because I think our profession is so can be painted as quite elitist mm. in a lot of ways and it's very grounding. And I imagine as well, you go to court and you fight for your clients, but it's their life, it's not yours. It's a day at work for you mm. versus someone else who might be coming to appear and it's incredibly consequential for their life. So something that is could be ranking in their top 10 most stressful days ever. For sure. To you, that's just Tuesday. Yeah, exactly right. Like there's so much more. I think you hit the nail on the head. And every time on the occasion that I lost some sort of interlocutory matter or some argument to a self-represented litigant, they were smiling from ear to ear and very relieved. Mm. And I was happy for them because, you know, that was, like you said, that was a stress they didn't have to worry about for that day. Have you seen some horror stories though? So these are, you've had some moments where, you know, they've, they've got one over you or, or the barrister in a federal court. <laughs> and to put it in perspective for people, the federal court, that's a, that's a very high, very high, bar. very high ranking yeah. court. What about horror stories? Self-represented cases gone bad. Yeah. <laughs> Supreme Court matter. I was not involved in this matter, mm-hmm. but it happened to be on the same timetable as me for people listening. That's sort of like you come to court and then it's like your timetable gets set when evidence, when the plaintiffs, when the defendant's evidence. It's sort of a bit formulaic. So we were almost on the same timetable. So I'd seen this matter before court a couple of times and there were a number of respondents to it or defendants. And two of them had to dial in because they were from regional New South Wales. Mm. They didn't have a lot to do with it. Uh, The plaintiff was prosecuting a particular matter. At one or two of these directions hearings, the one party was dialed in and he... At every opportunity, when the registrar gave him a chance to talk, he would begin by speaking about his evidence, and it was not the time for it. <laughs> uh, it was not the hearing. He would start reciting his affidavit evidence, which was extraordinarily entertaining for some people, but also really like saddening because I think he thought that was his only opportunity to get his name and his version out there. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a train wreck in some sense, and he... he you know, the registrar at the time said, you know, this is not the time. 
you know, can you just grab your other paperwork and, you know, your lawyer would have given you these things, which he did. But, you know, these comedic things that happen sometimes in court are generally around technology, really. Mm-hmm. You know, we have these dial-ins. So what he did was this was all going on in a big courtroom. There were about 30 people in the list, so filled with lawyers in the courtroom. And this particular defendant put everyone on hold while he walked away and found his found his material with that terrible pulled music. Oh, yeah. So everyone had to sit very quietly <laughs> because the poor registrar staff couldn't find the volume button. <laughs> so we couldn't hang up on the poor fella. Yeah. So everyone just waited for about probably, which felt like an hour. I think it would have been three or four minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, while he went to go and find his... Uh, <laughs> find his paperwork and agree with the registrar that the timetabling had to be set a particular way. And like I said, it's a little bit comedic, but also a little bit sad because, you know, you have these people who are partially represented and sometimes need to be there and, you know, they, they have issues with being able to access their lawyers. They have issues with being able to pay for their lawyers. We have this thing where a lawyer in our system can actually come off the record if they're not being paid or mm-hmm. they can hold a lien over the file. So we have people turning up and saying, I can't access my documents because my lawyer's holding a lien over the file because I haven't paid the fees. Mm. And that's really quite sad. Yeah. And that, sometimes that happens. People become self-represented litigants because they've got no other way of dealing with things. Um, mm. That's probably really the sadder side of things. Yeah. But it does happen more often than I'd like to admit. Where can a legal aid step in in a place like that where someone runs out of money and... Is it straightforward to become eligible for legal aid or is that a difficult process? Legal aid is means tested. So really it comes down to what you hold in liquid assets. And Mm. I think it's changed a little bit recently, but it used to also take into account what your assets were generally, Mm. which is also really difficult because, you know, we're sitting around and I'll digress for one second. We, We talk about the Australian dream and people, you know, I'm in my 30s and struggle, you know, as a lawyer, we still struggle in Sydney to save enough to afford a home. Mm. And if you're lucky enough to afford a home, if your means tested against a small apartment, you know, you may not have much disposable income. So you Mm. may still actually need legal aid, but you technically you don't qualify. So there are these very strange methods by which you might or might not qualify for legal aid, for Mm. example. So it's not, unfortunately, not straightforward. Mm. There is a process, but in saying that there are avenues by which people can get that assistance. You know, if we use the example I just spoke about someone holding a lien over your file, you know, legal aid might be able to assist you. There might be some grants available. They're tricky, but generally they are things that you need to consider on a case-by-case basis. But, you know, there are ways around them. I wanted to ask about, and I'm sure as a lawyer, you absolutely love people referencing the castle. It must be just your favourite thing in the world. Absolutely. (laughs) People talking about it. But it is one part of the movie that has lived on for years and years past its release date is this idea of arguing the vibe. Oh and my God. it's I love the vibe. Yeah, you love the vibe. <laughs> I mean, if I turn up to court with a speeding ticket and I try and argue a general vibe thing, how well are things going to go for me? Firstly, I wish I was Dennis Denudo and I could stand up in the federal court and talk about <laughs> the constitution and the vibe. That would be <laughs> the fantastic. Dream. It would be ab- the absolute <laughs> dream. It would be, it would be, you know, I would quote Daryl Kerrigan and talk about the serenity and I would enjoy it and I would love it. <laughs> and tear um, up your practicing certificate and just walk out. Completely. Just... I actually think, if we want to use that term loosely, I think the vibe is what magistrates or registrars or members 
are looking for from a self-represented litigant. Mm-hmm. They want to know that you know there's a sense of fairness or unfairness playing out in this and you may not be able to articulate it because you haven't had many years of training or practice, but you know something is unjust, right? You know that you weren't driving that car. You may not be able to swear an affidavit properly or bring a statement to court, but you can say, on that date, Your Honour, I was actually in the Northern Territory. I couldn't have been driving that car. The magistrate might say to you, okay, well, this was, you know, a red light camera in Sydney. If you say you're in the Northern Territory, give me some, um, I don't know, some some accommodation tips. Like, those are the sorts of things that I say are the vibe, right? Like, this is this, you need to be able to bring the gist mm. of what you're talking about. That is what the judge wants to hear. Yeah. The judge wants to hear, forgetting all of the bits and pieces and the technicalities, why do you say this is not your fault or why do you say you didn't do this thing Mm. or why do you say you are owed this thing if you're bringing the application, right? And I think that's where the vibe is. That's about that equitable result. People often talk about equality before the law. I don't... Equality is an interesting thing because it presumes people start from the same position. Equality would be if you and I both had the same legal training and we came up against each other and we had the same experience and, you know, we turned up to court and had that argument. What we're talking about is equity. We're Mm. talking about can we get someone to the line to be able to say, here is my position. I'm trying to articulate it as best I can. Here's the vibe. Mm. Give us a chance. Yeah. That's what that whole movie is about, right? Having Mm. a go. Yeah. I think that's really valid. Having a go. And yeah. sometimes you sometimes you beat a barrister in the federal court. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes you do. Sometimes sometimes, do. sometimes it can work out. I want to just ask about the notion of avoided cost. So is it worth the investment in a lawyer? It's a little bit like if you tried too hard to cut your own hair, it's probably going to cost you more to have to go to a professional to get them to really clean it up. Whereas if you just waited and gotten a trim, it's probably not going to cost you that much. Is there some similarity that can be drawn that getting a lawyer is actually a good investment in a, in a long-term proposition? I think the starting proposition for anyone here who's listening and thinking, I have this legal case or Zahir spoke about a fence. And so think about this. Go to the local court website or the district court website and have a read of the practice notes. They actually make them in reasonably plain language. Mm-hmm. And actually have that conversation really early on with your community legal centre or law access, for example, there are telephone lines you can call and they'll give you an idea of what the costs implications are. So, for example, in New South Wales in the local court, if your claim is less than $10,000, there's a cap on the amount of costs that you could pay should you lose. And there's also a cap on the amount of costs you can claim and you can only claim costs if you're a lawyer or if you have representation that you can claim back. So there's actually two things that you need to consider. Am I going to spend $5,000 defending a $10,000 claim? Even if I win, I only get $667 of my costs back? Or do I go for it and risk, you know, spent that $5,000, there might be another $5,000 or $10,000 in costs, Mm. or I represent myself, and really, in the end, I come out $10,000 anyway, Mm. even if I lose. That sounds like an assessment generally that lawyers make, but the courts are making it easy for you to look at, particularly for small claims, and there are lots of no-cost jurisdictions that, that can help you in this. So for someone listening who thinks they have a slam-dunk case, 
And what I say by that is, I don't know, they got video evidence of this contract, they got video of someone's car driving through their fence and all of this sort of stuff and they're like, yes, this is $50,000 worth of damage, I'm going to sue them and I'm going to get it all and I'm going to represent myself. Mm-hmm. Go get a lawyer. <laughs> when we're talking about in excess of sort of twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, I used to give this, this loose advice to one of my clients and it used to be this joke and I'd say to him, because he would say, I'm always spending so much money on you. And I said, well, would you rather spend the money on me now or would you rather take a punt on the amount, you know, that you're potentially going to lose? And he would get annoyed and then say to me, fine, send me your invoice. Um, <laughs> because he, he realised that once you took it to a particular level, you have to be content that if you're going to have a $50,000 fight without legal representation, you've got to be willing to walk away from that $50,000. Yeah. Even though you might lose, and this sounds a bit ridiculous, you might lose and spend $10,000 on lawyers, you'll be better protected on things like costs, Mm -hmm. the implications of losing, and the things that come after a court case. Because it's never just about the court case. The higher it gets, you're talking costs, court fees, costs of the other side. There are lots of different things you need to consider. Mm, And lots of little things that can pop up along the way that you might think that you've got a clear run up to a slam dunk. Exactly. And it turns out it's not the case. That's right. I mean, I couldn't tell you the amount of claims that matters that I've dealt with in sort of the local court, particularly in the earlier part of my career that started out as $50,000, $75,000 matters. They're not small, but, mm. you know, for companies, they're not big money. That ended up being $500,000 worth of, yeah. um, you know, quote-unquote principal claims where people get caught up in the, I have to win this it falls away from whether or not it's the claim. Mm. And if you as a self-represented litigant finds yourself on the other side of someone who wants to win something because of the principle and you don't have a lawyer, well, you can come back to this podcast and think I should have spent that 10 grand (laughs) on the lawyer. And that's what happens. If someone decides to represent themselves, what's your law school in a nutshell? Where where should they go? And, And are there resources available for people to look up ahead of time? I think they should all go buy a copy of The Castle, watch it over and over. <laughs> Look, I'm being a little bit serious actually yeah. because what that tell you is there is a significant power disparity in being a lawyer and not being a lawyer. Mm. Being self-represented is hard. Being a lawyer is, is difficult, being on your feet. You know, I think even for me, the, the litigator who ends up in court sometimes, 80% of that workload is not court. Mm. Right, So it's not turning up to court. So why I say people should, you know, watch movies, good Australian drama is it's very procedural. It's it's quite daunting. I think the next step is then make some phone calls, you know, speak to law access. They've got some phone advice lines. They're the ones that are probably most readily available. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a young person, there are young people's advice lines that you can call. If you're an Indigenous person, you can call the Aboriginal Legal Service. And there are resources available. I wish there were more. If you know a lawyer, ask them where to go. You know, just tap them on the shoulder and say, I know you probably can't give me advice, but can you tell me where to, t- you know, who to talk to? And most lawyers, if you preface it with that, they'll say, okay, you know, here's the number of community legal centre or here are the community legal centres or here is legal aid. Zaheer, I don't think... I would want to come up against you in court. You've shown a wealth of expertise and have really provided some practical guidance of the do's and don'ts of self-representation. Thank you so much for your time. It's very, very much appreciated. Like I said, you know, everyone just 
Watch the castle a few times and you'll be right. <laughs> it's the, the, the general vibe. If I left anyone with anything, it's the vibe is real. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales, hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Toccato and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.